Lord's house today, amen? And uh, it's good to have the First Brooks back with us. I know they wouldn't want me to bring any attention to them, but we're glad that they're back. Glad to have Ron back in the saddle leading worship uh, again. Enjoyed that this morning. Appreciate his energy and effort in that and uh, his leading us in worship. It's a, a real blessing to be a part of um, the worship program. So, Ron, when, you're, when you care and tell him, I said thank you. Um, we're going to be in Hebrews 9 this morning, and uh, we're going to cover verses 15 through 28. And so I'm just going to read them to you, and then we'll pray, and, and we'll seek to see what the Lord might have for us in, the, in this passage of Scripture. So follow along with me, if you would, in your Bibles, in Hebrews 9, verse 15. The Bible says, Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant, for where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered, not only, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true thing, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For when he would have had to, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed unto men once to die, and after this comes judgment, so Christ therefore being offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sins, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Let's pray together. Now, Father, we thank you this morning for your word. We thank you for the hope that it brings. We thank you for the promises that are found within it that give us hope of a future, hope of eternity. And we pray, Lord God, that you'll bless your word this morning, that you'll give us a moment to, to meditate on it, that you will come here amongst us, that you'll teach us by your spirit, that you'll guide us into the truths that you would have for us. Lord God, that our lives might be changed, our hearts might be changed, and we might be on a, a different path than what we were before. Please give us a moment, Lord God, of just total humility and emptiness before you, that we would come, Lord God, with hands open and ready to receive what you have for us, that we would come realizing that this is a worship moment, a, a moment in which our attention, our energy, our minds are totally focused on you. And so we pray that you would remove any of um, Satan's deceptions, hindrances, to what you are trying to communicate. Please bless your word this morning. Be glorified and praised and worshiped through it. In Christ's name, amen. We've been talking about for the last several weeks the new covenant. We talked about the similarities between the new and the old covenant. We talked about the differences between the new and old covenant. If, if you haven't been able to be here for this part of the journey, I encourage you to uh, take some time and go on our website and, uh, and refresh yourselves through those things. It's sometimes difficult as a verse-by-verse a -verse 
pastor teaching through books of the Bible to not be able to continually cover the whole aspect of the book. And so for some that kind of come into the middle of the study, it might seem like we're missing some foundational things, but I believe that if you take some time to really go through some of the sermons that have been preached, you'll find that it's all there, it's all packaged together. We're just trying to walk through it in as much of a, of a methodical way as we possibly can. And um, so I pray that you'll do that and just listen this morning for the message that God has for you from this passage of Scripture. And while it, while it all fits together like a glove, it's, uh, it's, it also has a message within each passage of Scripture. And we believe that the Bible fits together like a glove, right? That the whole entire Genesis Revelation fits together like a glove. How many of you would like me to preach that every Sunday? <laughs> right? It's already long enough as it is, right? So, uh, so sometimes we do just get to deal with and focus in on and, and drive home a simple message of a passage that does have a broader picture that we're, we're, we're not able to cover sufficiently. So... So we've talked about the, the similarities of the Old New Covenant, the differences between the Old and the New Covenant. And this morning we're going to talk about the last or the New Covenant as a last will and testament. And I want you to think about the New Covenant in this way. I want you to think about the New Covenant as a, real, as a rebuilt bridge. Okay, so if, you're, if you have an, an imagination, which I'm, I'm not... I'm not much on the imagination thing. My wife is much better at imagining things than I am. I do not have a, a vivid imagination. It's really very pale, so especially when I compare it to my wife. But just picture with me uh, a bridge, um, the new covenant as a bridge. In Genesis, God created everything good. And God dwelled in heaven, and man dwelt on the earth. And if you can imagine that there was a bridge between the two, and the bridge that was between heaven and earth was something which enabled God to commune with man, to fellowship with man on a consistent basis. There was a, a unique, intimate fellowship. There was peace, there was unity, there was harmony. All of these things existed in the Garden of Eden because there was no separation between God and man except for space. In other words, there, it wasn't like God was... Uh, dwelling in the same space as man was, but there was the only thing that separated man from God was space. Space, you get the picture. Um, told you I wasn't very good at these types of things. So imagine that there's this bridge that allows man and God to come together. Adam and Eve sinned by taking the fruit that was on the tree that God told them not to take, and when Adam and Eve sinned, that bridge was destroyed. There was no longer communion with God. There was no longer access to God. There was this bridge that, that caused that to be able, was, was destroyed, and now God and man were separated. And we see that in the Garden of Eden with, with Adam and Eve immediately hiding from God and, and, and blaming each other and making excuses. So there is no communion anymore because that bridge of harmony has been destroyed. And it's been destroyed based upon man's sin. So what God does is God gives, God gives a promise in Genesis as well as throughout the Bible. And he says to mankind, I will rebuild this bridge. This, this bridge is going to be rebuilt. And the way that this bridge is going to be rebuilt, as we know today because we get to look back on it, the bridge is going to be rebuilt by the work of Christ. Christ Jesus is going to restore a communion with God. He's going to restore this access to God that doesn't exist during the Old Testament time because the bridge was destroyed by man's sin. So that's the promise that God gives even in Genesis chapter number 12 when God tells Abraham, I'm going to make of you a great nation, right? That's a promise of restoring that bridge that God and man are going to be restored to harmony together again. It's a wonderful and marvelous promise. However, what happens is, is that mankind decides that he will rebuild this bridge himself. No different than mankind deciding to build the, the, the uh, great, um, the great uh, building that went to heaven and wanted to reach heaven on his own. Man decided that he was going to rebuild this bridge to God on his own. So what God does in the old covenant is God gives the children of Israel the blueprint 
for rebuilding the bridge back to God. So here, God has made this promise, this covenant, if you will, that he will rebuild the bridge. He will restore this bridge back to God, to, back to him. There will be restored fellowship with him, and it will only come through his son. But man, in his self-righteousness, man in his pride, man in his own ability says, no, we will rebuild this bridge. And we will not, only re- we will not rebuild it in thousands of years, but we will rebuild it now. And so what God does is God gives him the blueprint and says, okay, here's what this bridge looks like. Rebuild it. And what it shows, what the old covenant shows with all of its ceremonies and sacrifices, with all of its systems, what the old covenant shows mankind is they are incapable of rebuilding the bridge. That's the entire purpose of the old covenant was to show mankind how significant how, how supernatural this fellowship with God is that mankind could not restore it on their own. That is why the Bible tells us in, in Romans 3 that the law was given so that mankind's mouth would be stopped and all the world will become guilty before God. And it's interesting that he uses the idea of mouth being stopped. Isaiah 6 talks about when Isaiah sees the Lord high and lifted up, what does he say? I'm a man of unclean Feet or hands or mind? What does he say? I'm a man of unclean lips. When Job wrestles with God for about a year time with some of the most horrific sacrifices being made, in the very end, after wrestling with God for a a long season, the Bible says that he finally puts his hand over over his mouth. Proverbs says, if a man will praise himself, let him put his hand over his mouth. The Bible talks about out of, the, out of the mouth flows the issues of the heart. God said, God made a promise with man, I will rebuild this bridge and it will be rebuilt on my terms and mankind determined to, build, to rebuild the bridge on their own. God allowed them to make an attempt at it in the old covenant, showing them to be completely incapable of rebuilding the bridge. And the the truth is the same today. Any religion that teaches that we can rebuild a bridge to God based upon our own merits or our own works is teaching heresy. They're not teaching the truth of God's word. They're teaching you that you can establish fellowship with God based upon something meritorious about yourself. This is totally contrary to God's word. But let me say something to you this morning. God will let you try. God will let you try. God will even give you the blueprint to make it happen. But you, what you will find at the end of every day of your life, as you, seek to, as you seek to restore fellowship with God on your own merits, is you will always find that you will fall short. Because it is impossible for mankind to have fellowship with God outside of Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. This is where the new covenant comes in. The new covenant was given in Genesis chapter number 12 to Abraham. The new covenant is fulfilled. There's a difference between it being a promise. In the Old Testament, the new covenant was a promise. In the New New Testament, the new covenant is a fulfillment. It is done. It is accomplished. It is satisfied. It is set up. In this passage of Scripture... In these verses, it's referred to as a, um, a will. If you're familiar with a will, if you maybe most of you probably have a will of some sort where you've written out a will, and that will is um, what's supposed to happen with your possessions after you die, right? That's what a will is. You've written out a piece of paper and you've had it legally confirmed that when you die, these are the things that are going to happen, and you're probably going to give your children some of your possessions. You might give a relative some, but you've, you've got a plan so that your money is handled well. If you don't have a will, I was just listening to the radio the other day, and they said if you don't have a will, then the government gets a lot of your money. So go ahead and go, go get a will together, all right? If you want to have a will. So there's this, this is, this is, this is uh, chapter number nine is referring to the, old, to the new covenant as a will or a testament. 
So a will and a testament, just think with me for a moment, okay? A will and a testament prior to the death of the one who has made it is simply a promise, right? It's a promissory note. It says, when this happens, then these things will become a reality. But until these things happen, all this is is a promise. It is a one-sided thing where the one who has all of the possessions is making the will. It's one-sided. It doesn't say, if you do this, I'll, I mean, I know some of our wills might say that. If you, know, if you turn out rotten, young man, you're not going to get any of my, of my possessions, right? That's not the way God's will works, all right? So it's a one-sided will where God says, if God says that I'm going to give you these things when, when I die, okay? When I, when, I, when, I, when I die, these are the things that are going to be yours. It's one-sided, and it's only enforceable after the death of the one who has originated it. Okay? It's only enforceable after the death of the originator. That's what the text tells us here. So we just read it a moment ago, and we'll unfold it a little bit further. So the new covenant is Jesus' promises to his people that following his death, he will give them an inheritance. I'm reminded of what he says in John chapter number 16 and verse 7. He says, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away, for if I go away... The Helper, or the Holy Spirit, will come to you, and if I go, I will send him to you. The Lord is saying to, him, to the people, it's to your advantage, it's for your good that I am going to die, and ultimately, because the Holy Spirit's going to come on them, and the Holy Spirit's going to be in them. The Holy Spirit's going to, going to um, let me say it this way, the Holy Spirit's going to confer on them all of the benefits of Christ. The Holy Spirit is going to administer to them. It's almost like the Holy Spirit is that person that comes in after the death has been fulfilled, right? And that Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit comes in and says, okay, here's where, the, here's where it all goes, right? Here's where this goes, and here's, where, here's who gets the house, and here's who gets the, the cars, and here's who gets the bank accounts, and, and the Holy Spirit kind of administers all of these wonderful gifts. What, what happens is, is the Holy Spirit actually comes to live inside of an individual, and, he, and, and the Holy Spirit confers on that individual all of the blessings of Christ. This is the inheritance that we have been given. So the heart of this covenant, as we look at this passage of Scripture, Verses 15 and verse 28 actually describe the heart of this, of this covenant, the new covenant. And this is called, this uh, type of writing in the scripture is called an inclusio. And an inclusio just means that you kind of have two bookends. And uh, these two verses almost look identical. Verse 15 and verse 8, 28 almost look identical. They both say exactly the same thing. And then in the middle of that is, is simply an explanation or an unfolding of those two bookends. So you literally, if you read verse 15 and then read verse 28, you're almost reading exactly the same thing. You're reading an explanation of the same thing. And then in the middle of that, you have a... That's why it's called an inclusio. It includes an explanation in the middle. It almost includes a parable of, okay, here's how it looks. Let's talk about a last will and testament. And it gives us a, a way to understand how the new covenant works. So I want to just walk through you this, with you this morning just for a few minutes. We have the Lord's Supper this morning. So I really, I know this is the pastor's worst last words, but I don't really want to. My last will and testament is I'm not going to take very long, right? <laughs> it's only a promise right now, but hopefully it'll come to fruition. I want to give you, I want to just walk through real quick here um, just a few things in this text, uh, and I want to press home one thought at the end, one thought at the end. So first of all, what is the rationale for the new covenant? First of all, remember that the purpose of the new covenant is to restore fellowship with God. Hebrews 7 and verse 19 says, the purpose of the new covenant is to bring, bring us close to God again. So that we can, bring, we, can bring, we can be close to God. If you're here this morning and you have no desire to be close to God, and honestly, you might be here with that, with that struggle, then this is not for you. This is not for you. But if you have a desire to be close to God, then the new covenant is the answer to your, to your desire. The new covenant is the solution to your desire. If you, I think of some people, it's like, I have a desire to go to heaven. I have a desire to have all of these things, but I really don't have a desire to be close to God. This is not for you. The gospel is not for people who want to go to heaven. The gospel is for people who want to be close to God. 
That's what the gospel accomplishes. Yeah, heaven is a wonderful benefit of being close to God. Heaven is a wonderful benefit of having God's presence in your life. But, but the goal of the gospel is not to get you to heaven. It's not to make your bank account big. It's not to make you healthy or wealthy. The goal of the gospel is to bring you into communion with God. And listen, when you get in communion with God, a lot of those things happen, don't they? But that's not the purpose of the gospel. So if you're here with us this morning and your mentality is, man, I, I want all the benefits, but I don't, you know, don't bring me close to that holy and just and righteous God who's going to convict me of my sins and he's going to shine a bright light on me and show all of the darkness within me. Don't bring me close to him. The gospel is not for you. But if you're truly interested in being close to God, you're going to know that he is going to shine light on your sins. He is going to expose you for who you are and he's going to embrace you and he's going to love you and he's going to care for you on the journey. Amen? He doesn't leave us. He doesn't break us into pieces spiritually or physically so that we see how frail and empty and and hopeless we are to leave us there. He does that so that he can then restore us and restore us into true intimacy with him. So the rationale behind the new covenant is to restore us to God. Okay, wants to restore us to God. It is established totally on the work of Jesus Christ. It is described for us in Hebrews 8, verses 10 through 12, where he says the new covenant is three things. It is the spirit of, it is the spirit of holiness coming to live within you. It is the spirit of truth coming to live within you. And it is the forgiveness of your sins by God's mercy. That is the new covenant. The new covenant is simply in its fulfilled state... I'm not talking about the process of bringing it about, but in its fulfilled state, the new covenant is simply this. The spirit of the law or the spirit of holiness comes to live inside of you. So listen, don't think of salvation as being absent of holiness. The Bible says that there is a people who who should pursue unity and pursue holiness without which you will never see the Lord. There is a holiness that must be present in a person who is truly saved, but it's not a holiness produced by an uh, uh, obedience to a list of external rules. It's a holiness that's produced in the heart. It's a holiness that flows from the inside of us, not from the outside of us. Don't separate the holiness of the Spirit of God living inside of you from salvation, because that is the new covenant. God's holy law comes to live inside of you. Changes you from the inside out versus from the outside trying to change the inside, which is exactly what the old covenant does, which was meant to show us that we couldn't do it, right? Not only that, but the covenant covenant includes the spirit of truth coming to live within us. This means we don't need a teacher anymore, but we have God's spirit who is the ultimate teacher of the word of God. Every one of us should be diving in and digging into God's Word each day, not depending on commentaries and and devotional books, which there's nothing wrong with those things. Listen to me, folks. Those things are not a replacement for the Spirit of God. You say, well, I can't get anything out of the Word of God. It doesn't make any sense to me. Well, maybe the problem isn't that you need a a new commentary or a new devotional book, but maybe the issue is you need the Spirit to be walking with you through it. He promises us, John 14 through 16, I will give you my spirit. He will teach you all things, right? He is the ultimate teacher. The spirit of God is the ultimate teacher. If you are a believer this morning, there is no reason why you can't unfold what the scripture means. This is why we have to lean on prayer and, 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 and really get on our knees and seek God's face before or, 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 or while we're studying God's word. And then forgiveness of sins. He shows us mercy. He says, I will place your sins as far as the east is from the west. He says, I will never remember your sins again, which means I will not hold them against you. That's the the essence uh, of the law. Who is responsible for the new covenant? Jesus Christ is responsible for the new covenant. We see this all throughout this passage of scripture. It It says this. It says, he is the mediator of the new covenant in verse 15. In verse 16, it says, the one who made it must be, the death of the one who made it must be established. Verse 17 says, it's not enforced unless the one who made it is uh, is dead or is, is no longer alive. 
Verse 24 says, for Christ has entered. Verse 26 says, he has appeared once for all. Verse 28 says, so Christ will appear a second time. What you'll find about the new covenant is it is, it is, it is established in Christ. If you wanted to really, I mean, we're going to take the Lord's Supper this morning, and when we take that cup, we're saying that this is the new covenant in my blood. Really, in, for all intents and purposes, folks, if you wanted to define the new covenant, you would just say, Christ is the new covenant. Christ is the new covenant. Everything about the new covenant is about Christ. The text here calls him the mediator of the new covenant. It calls, calls him the originator of the new covenant. In other words, he's the one who makes the promise. He's the one who mediates the promise. And he's the one who is the sacrifice for the promise. Everything about the new covenant is built in Christ. It has nothing to do with us other than the fact that we are simply benefactors from it. Jesus Christ did everything. He promises his people. He then dies on the cross so that we can have it. And then he raises again and he administers it to us. Everything about the new covenant is about Christ he is the responsible one in the new covenant. Number three, what is the reason for the new covenant? Why do we have to have a new covenant? One of the themes that you'll find flowing throughout our text is the idea of sin. Sin is what separates us between, separates between us and our God. The Lord tells us that in the Old Testament prophets. Sin has separated between you and your God. We see the idea in this passage of Scripture of sin, of transgression is used. The two terms that are used to describe the thing that causes there to be a need for the new covenant is, is sin, number one, and transgression, number two. And both of these things make, it, make us unworthy of entering into fellowship with God. It makes us incapable of having fellowship with God. It creates, a, not only does it destroy the bridge that, that brought us to God or brought God to us, it also places a wall between us and God. Because of sin, no one is worthy to fellowship with God. No one is capable of entering into his presence and not being destroyed. This is a theme that's seen all throughout the New Testament. Even when they entered into his presence unworthily in the Old Testament, when they entered into a semblance of his presence and were not holy or were not bringing the proper sacrifice, they would be destroyed. Sin simply means missing the mark to wander away from God, to fall short. This relates to known and unknown sins. It's not a deliberate sin that causes us to miss the mark, right? You shoot an arrow at a target, how many times do we miss the mark? We miss the mark a lot, don't we? I mean, very few people shoot an arrow at a target and hit the bullseye every single time, right? Some of us don't hit the bullseye ever, but, but the reality of it is that's the idea of this, of this statement, Sin is simply missing the mark. Well, you say, Pastor John, what is the mark? Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the... There's the mark. The mark is the glory of God. So guess what? Every time you shoot at the glory of God, how many times do you miss? Even as a believer, how often I shoot for the glory of God, how often do I miss? I miss it every single time. There isn't one time that I shoot to do anything like God would do it and hit the target. This is why any time that we do anything that reaches the glory of God, it's not us doing it, it's the Spirit of God in us doing it. This is why Galatians 5 calls it the fruits of the Spirit. We can do nothing that measures up to God's standard. We can do nothing that glorifies God because we are sinful and fallen. This is what causes us to need the new covenant. Not only that, but transgression is used in verse 15. He says, from their transgressions. This is a more deliberate sin. This is the breaking, the violating, the breaching, or the disregarding of rules and regulations. If you could picture a line drawn in the sand, dads and moms, and you tell that little child, don't step over that line, right? What's the first thing that that kid's going to do? They're going to try to step over that line. I mean, most kids that are you know, little tiny things, they're going to try to step over that line. They're going to show their authority over your authority, right? 
They're going to establish themselves. This is the same idea as transgressions. We're going to establish ourselves over your authority, God. So you have deliberate sin. You have not deliberate sin. The reality of it is all sin causes us to be at odds or at war with God. So we need to understand why the new covenant was given. Because mankind could not satisfy God's righteousness and be restored to him. Number four, who are the recipients of the new covenant? We see in our passage of scripture, in our text here, that there are two people mentioned. He says in verse number 15, therefore he is the mediator of the new covenant so that those who are called, okay, that's the people for whom this is meant. Those who are called, and this is a very important word, very significant word. Those who are called does not, is not referring to everybody, Okay, it's those who are called is referring to a distinct group of people. This, this calling that's mentioned here is not an external like the preaching of God's word. The call that's being referred to here is an internal work of the Holy Spirit. It is when you hear the, it's not when you hear the voice of John Prettyman preaching from the pulpit. It's when you hear the voice of God who lives inside of you. You've been born again and the voice of God is calling you to himself. This is the type of, of this is the type of calling that is being referred to here. It's a spiritual internal call that not only invites somebody to salvation, but it causes somebody to be saved. This is what brings about salvation. This is the changing of the heart and the mind that causes somebody to want to do what is right. This is the Philippians 2 where it says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who works in you both the will and the ability to do which is pleasing in his sight. God is working in individuals. God is calling individuals to himself and not in a general call type of a way but in a specific transformative type of a way. You say, well, this, that's not fair, Pastor John. It is fair. God is God. He gives us so many parables in the Bible teaching us that God can do with his stuff whatever he wants to do with his stuff. And he says this in one parable. He says, if you, if you, he says, he, he literally says in this argument, he says, isn't God have the right to do with his stuff whatever he wants? There's a called group of people that are completely under the grace of God. This is a spiritual calling. It's an invitation, a, a loud call. It means to utter the name of somebody. It means to pass somebody from one state to another. John 10, the Bible says that Jesus Christ knows his children by name. And then John 11, Jesus Christ says to Lazarus, Lazarus, come forth. This is a picture of salvation. This is a picture of regeneration. This is a picture of God bringing a people to himself. I will submit this to you. I will submit this to you. No one would be saved unless God brought a people to himself in a supernatural way. There isn't anybody who, Romans 10 says, nobody seeks after God, nobody desires God, nobody is righteous. No, not even one. The reason there are people saved today is because God supernaturally saves people. Our dependence is not on their ability to do righteous deeds. Our dependence is on God's ability to save people. This is why we spend as much time praying over somebody's soul as we do presenting the gospel to somebody. Because it takes the Holy Spirit's power to awaken them to see the truths of God's word. And listen to me. When the Holy Spirit of God awakens somebody's soul who was dead in their trespasses and sins, and he makes them alive unto Jesus Christ, they will fall down on their knees and worship him. Because they will realize that it was totally a work of him and not them. It was a complete work of grace and a complete work of mercy that they could not manufacture on their own. I believe that the reason why we have a we have a massive movement of unthankful evangelicals is because we believe in our hearts that we have somehow manufactured salvation on our own. We haven't fallen before the one who has created all things, who is a perfectly righteous and holy judge, who condemns sin completely. We haven't fallen before him and pleaded with him for mercy and grace that leads to forgiveness and leads to thanksgiving for what he has done. This is the new covenant those who are called receive it. 
Romans 8 and verse 30 says, And those whom he predestined, these he also called. And those whom he called, these he also justified. And those whom he justified, these he also glorified. What you'll find unique about this, it's called the golden chain of redemption, Romans 8, 30, and 31. What you'll find is simply this, that everybody who is predestined is justified, and everybody who is justified is, is um, glorified. It's the, the structure is such that one causes the other. There is a holy, righteous, spiritual calling inside of an individual that brings life to them. It causes them to want to repent and to have faith in Christ. This is a gift to us, a gift for us. Not only is it for those who are called, but you'll notice at the very last, here's what he describes how he describes the same people. He says, those who are eagerly waiting for him. I love the way that it's I love the way that it's uh, that it's worded. It doesn't just say that those who are waiting for him, but it says, here is the people who are called, those who are eagerly waiting for him. This means to be watchful, anticipating, believing, or expecting. The Apostle Paul uses this to describe the last of his life when he says in 2 Timothy 4, 8, henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, and not to me only, but also for all of those who are watching for his appearing, who are loving his appearing, who are anticipating his appearing. The parable of the faithful servant in Matthew 25 is a good parable of one servant who the master goes away and he leaves his servants there and he tells them, I'm going to come back, but I'm going to let you be a steward of the stuff that I've given you. You guys guys know the parable, right? One of those servants, the master stays away long enough and that servant says, hey, you know something? The master's not coming back. So I'm going to party. I'm going to live it up. Life is going to be crazy for me. And then the master does come back, and the Bible says that he casts them into outer darkness. Why? He wasn't waiting for the Lord. He wasn't anticipating the Lord's return. I believe that we're close to the Lord's return today. We see the things going on around us. We see the fulfillment of prophecies. We know that the Lord's return, it's closer than it was yesterday. It's for those people, those who are called spiritually those who are waiting, anticipating the return of the Lord. What is the resolution of the new covenant? Very quickly, verse 15, it says that he redeems them of their transgressions. Verse 22 says he forgives them of their sins. Verse 26 says he puts away their sins. Verse 28 says he bears their sins and he deals with their sins. There's literally five terms that are used in this passage of Scripture, all relating to how Jesus Christ deals with our sins. I'm not going to go through those terms because of time. But he redeems, he forgives, he puts away, he bears, he deals with. Ultimately, listen folks, there is nothing left for our sin to have over us. There's nothing left for our sin to have over us. This is what the new covenant promises us. The last thought this morning is where I want to press in just a moment. What is the resolve of the new covenant? What is the purpose of the new covenant? Listen to what he says in the first verse. He says, therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called, and here's, the, here's, the, here's what he's pressing. Here's what he's pressing for you. Here's the reason for a, a, a last will and covenant. The reason, why we last, we, the reason why we write a last will and covenant, right, is so that somebody that we care for gets what we leave behind. True? Is that true? And, and that somebody that doesn't deserve it doesn't get it. Is that true? So this covenant is made specifically. God is not talking about this general last will. You know something? I'm going to leave these things. And you know, whoever grabs them can have them. He's, he's making a very specific covenant to his people, those who are called and those who are waiting for him, a very specific covenant for those people specifically. This is like this family type of a, an event. He's writing this very, very specific covenant for the people that he loves and cares for. Those are a part of his family. That's you and me who have faith in Christ, right? Everybody who trusts in Christ has been called and is waiting for him. But he does that. Listen to me. This is where I want to press for a moment. He does that so that we might have his inheritance. That's why he does it. The new covenant, the purpose of the new covenant, the the 
the push, the resolve of the new covenant is that we, his children, might receive his inheritance. He says it may that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. So when I left out the death of Christ, I didn't mean to, but that's all throughout this as well. Blood is just simply transferable with death, and blood and death mean the same thing, and this scripture is full of it because Christ's blood and death is what brought all of this about. But I'm not going to rewind to that. You guys get that part. I want to press in with you on that we may receive the promised eternal inheritance. The, the word received there literally means to, to take hold of. That we might take hold of that promised inheritance. We might receive, we might, we might embrace, we might, we might assume that promised inheritance that the Lord Jesus Christ died that we might have. Think about this verse, Romans 8.32. The Bible says, He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? 2 Peter 1.3 says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. He asked the question this morning, have I, have I embraced the inheritance of the Lord? Have I embraced what he left behind for me? When he died, he died in such a way as to initiate, the Bible says, to initiate a will and covenant so that his people might have the things that he left behind. I will submit to you that many of us don't even know what he's left behind for us, much less have embraced it. And the reality of it is the way that most of us live our lives shows that we haven't embraced the very thing that Jesus Christ died for us to have. It's really a shame to think about Jesus died to inaugurate, to initiate a, a last will and covenant so that you could have all of these things and we just kind of leave them laying there. It's, it's kind of like somebody who has received an inheritance from their father of multi-millions of dollars but is, but is homeless on the streets and will not go and access what they have been left. We would all call that crazy, right? Right? Can I get some agreement on that one? Right? <laughs> Okay, if you don't want the millions that your parents leave you, then feel free to bring them this way, right? Listen, we do that with God's inheritance. Jesus Christ died to pay for our sins, but he also died to initiate a covenant, a will for us to have all that he's left behind. He's pressing that. He says the new covenant is so that you might have, you might have the promised eternal inheritance. He doesn't even say promised eternal life. Listen, it's a part of that. But don't minimize it just to that. There's more to it. There's so much to the inheritance that Jesus Christ left behind for us when he died. And then he rose again. And he did all of that so that we might have these things. I just want to go through a few of them. They're, they're in this text. You, you will find this and. It's so important to get this. You will find the presence of God mentioned in each case when these benefits are being mentioned. In other words, what we need is the presence of God in our life. The presence of God is what causes these things to happen. The presence of God is what causes us to embrace the inheritances of God. It's the walking in the flesh that keeps us from doing that. So what has the Lord left us? Think about it with me for a moment. He says in verse number 20, this is the blood of the covenant that God, did, that God required for you. In other words, there was a blood payment required for you or for your benefit. So if it's for our benefit, it's a part of the inheritance, right? Listen to me. Jesus Christ died and a part of the inheritance was full payment for your sin, full satisfaction of God's law and justice and full forgiveness and freedom for sin from sin for you. That's a part of the inheritance. Romans 6, 11, the Bible says, consider yourselves to be dead to sin and alive to God in Jesus Christ. In his, in his death, he paid fully for your sins. Do you believe that? 
I mean, honestly, have you embraced that? When you walk through your day and you're feeling guilty and you're feeling shame and you're feeling, you're feeling destroyed by the mind, by the constant attacks of the devil for how sinful you are, do you find rest in the fact that Jesus Christ gave you an inheritance of forgiveness? What is he pressing here? He's saying, embrace that. I've done all of this so that you would embrace what I've done for you. That you would treasure the inheritance that I've given to you. In his death, he fully paid for our sins. He fully satisfied God's wrath and God's law and God's justice. He fully forgives and gives freedom from sin. Do we embrace that? The Bible says in his resurrection, secondly, he says in verse 24, For Christ has entered not only into the places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself. We see his presence here again. Now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Again, something's being done for our benefit. This is the inheritance. So what do we inheritance through the resurrection of Christ? We inheritance, number one, gifted righteousness. That means that Christ who lives in us, who bears the perfect righteousness of Christ, becomes our righteousness for us. It's a gift. That's why the Bible says, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. He gives us his resurrection. He gives us his indwelling Holy Spirit. He gives us acceptance and access to God. He gives us an eternal and continual representative before God. He gives us an eternity that stands on our behalf. And then not only is that a part of his resurrection inheritance for us, but it also, he gives us new life. Listen to what he says in Romans 6, 4. We were buried therefore with him by baptism into, into death in order that or so that Just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. In other words, Jesus Christ's new covenant is meant to make you inherit a new life. These verses were were a part of this week's study, and I think that they're valuable. John 14, verse 27 says, My peace I leave with you. Right? How many of us say that we live in the peace of Christ? I mean, honestly, that would mean no worries, no frustrations. This is the inheritance that we've received. This is what He's given us in the presence of His in the in the presence of His Spirit in the in the indwelling of His Spirit. In John 15 and verse 11 says, my pr- the Lord prays and says, my prayer is that my joy might be, might be in you and that your joy might be full. Would you call that a part of the inheritance? Christ's peace is a part of the inheritance. Christ's joy is a part of the inheritance. Galatians 5.1 says to walk in the freedom or in the liberty by which I have made you free. Do we walk in liberty? Do we live in liberty? Hope is something that he gives us as an inheritance. Holiness is something that he gives us as an inheritance. Mission is something that he gives us as an inheritance. Listen this morning, God, Jesus Christ died, yes, to pay for your sins, but also to inaugurate a will, a testament, so that you might have these things. God, help us if we don't embrace them. The last thing that he says, it's so important to remember this too. It says in verse 28, and he will appear a second time. Listen to me. The the benefits of God's, the benefits of Christ's inheritance to us don't stop with his death, which is past. They don't stop with his intercession, which is presence, but they, they enter into what we call his second coming. Ultimately, our greatest hope Our greatest anticipation is that one day the Lord is going to come back for us, right? And that all of the things that he's promised us all throughout his word are going to come to fruition with him forever. The Bible says in Hebrews 11 and verse 16, but as it is, they desired a a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city And then Hebrews 10, verse 34 says, 
For you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that for yourself you had a better possession and an abiding one. Just think, I only covered a few things that are part of the Lord's inheritance. There's so many. You know, we could go on and on and on forever talking about eternal inheritance, now inheritance, and past inheritance. We could talk forever about it. But I just want you to think about it. I want you to think about what Jesus Christ's death meant, not just for the payment of your sins, but for the inauguration of a covenant that you could have all of this stuff. That's what the new covenant is about. Let me ask you these questions in closing. Have you embraced this covenant? Have you embraced Christ in his death? Have you experienced the forgiveness and freedom the Lord has purchased for you in his own blood from sin? Are you a person who holds on to repentance and faith? If you have these things, then you are a Christian. You are a believer this morning. But it doesn't stop there. Have you embraced his resurrection? Have you embraced the righteousness that Christ has imputed into your life through his Holy Spirit? Have you embraced a new life, a transformed life, a changed life? Does Christ now live in you and through you? Do you experience his joy and his peace and his comfort and his contentment and his, and his love and his compassion and his grace and his mercy? Do you experience those things every day of your life? This is what he gives us. And then lastly, have you embraced that which is eternal? Are you motivated by the fact that we have an eternal promise? That the work of Christ is not temporary, but it is meant to transform us and change us forever. To restore us to God. This is the challenge that we face today. And I pray that we would embrace the covenant. We would embrace not just the not just the past piece of it, but the present intercession and new life and the future promises that God has for us. Let's pray together. Thank you so much, Lord, for your word. Thank you for the new covenant. Thank you for caring enough about your people to give us the opportunity to be a part of your family and to bringing us into a relationship with you through Christ. And I pray that you would help us to embrace all that that means to Embrace the past, the present, and the future. Pray that you would bless our time together as we seek to um, honor you by taking up your communion. In Christ's name, amen.